Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. the very first episode in 2021 of the show before the show podcast the official podcast of minor league baseball from milb.com we are your loyal uh i don't want to say fearless because you know we're both scared of things i'm sure um enthusiastic hosts i don't know i'm not really selling this hi i'm tyler ron sam baxter's in new york city hi sam I feel like we've been over this before. Like we used fearless before and then I had to explain snakes. Like right, 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 snakes. right, right. And also, yeah. I mean, just the state of things right now yeah. is <laughs> I can like yeah. list off a lot of fears I have. Fear um, of, of, of existence. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's a lot. So yeah, but, I wouldn't really, I wouldn't really say that. I will settle for enthusiastic. I can yeah. go with enth- enthusiastic. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I can try um, to do that for an hour. Our very first episode of the new year. Welcome in to, to this week's show. Uh, we got a lot coming up for you today. The second ranked prospect in the Washington Nationals organization, Kate Cavalli, will join us coming up in just a little bit. We'll hear from Benjamin Hill in a little while as well. And there are a lot of baseball things to discuss. We haven't gotten a chance to talk to you for a couple of weeks, uh, taking some time over the holiday break without podcast episodes. But here we are returning to your podcast feeds in the new year and so much to discuss. And before we do discuss all that, uh, thanks for tuning in with us wherever you found us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, everywhere else. Leave us a rating and a review and a subscription if you are so inclined. And you can get in touch with the show, podcast at MILB.com. Uh, Sam's on Twitter at Sam Dykes or MILB. I am on Twitter at Tyler Mon. Get us your uh, your questions about the offseason, hot stove, prospect trades, uh, the minor leagues, anything that you would like to know. And we were always happy to address those here on the show from week to week. Uh, we've got almost a, as Sam noted in our, our pre-recording conversation, it's almost kind of a throwback show today where we have three big topics right out of the gate. Uh, normally, for those of you who have been around for quite some time, those who are just joining us you might not be as familiar with this ordinarily when the world is normal we open the show with three strikes which are the three top topics from the world of minor league baseball we obviously did not do that in 2020 because we did not have a minor league baseball season but today kind of feels like an old three strikes segment and we're going to kick it off with some big baseball news trades right out of the gate we are starting with one the biggest one from today francisco lindor has been traded to the new york mets as the mets new ownership group 
starts to make its splash uh, in the the hot stove and acquiring big time players. Uh, they are sending a group of prospects the other way. We're not going to talk about Francisco Lindor, who also moves to New York with Carlos Carrasco, major league starting pitcher. Uh, we are going to talk about the prospect group that is headed in the direction of Cleveland. Uh, the names that are on this list, not all of them remaining prospects, but Infielders Andres Jimenez and Ahmed Rosario, outfielder Isaiah Green, and right-handed pitcher Josh Wolf are the four names headed to Cleveland uh, in exchange for Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco, who go to the Mets. Um, Sam, your thought uh, on this deal, the, the two infielders, Andres Jimenez and Ahmed Rosario, very highly touted as they came up in the, in the Mets organization. Uh, Josh Wolf was the number nine prospect in the Mets system, and Isaiah Green was number 10. This deal, the immediate reaction, I think a lot of people feel like, oh man, Cleveland got fleeced. Um, but I think there is some stuff really here for, for Cleveland fans to be excited about. Yeah, we're, we're kind of caught in this awkward position here because what you s- said is true, is that we have to talk about the prospects of this deal, and really there are only two of them, uh, Josh Wolf and Isaiah Green. Josh Wolf was the number nine prospect in the Mets system at the time of the trade. Isaiah Green was number 10. Uh, for our purposes, Andre Jimenez graduated. He Graduated last year. He didn't get enough at-bats, but he was on the major league roster long enough to graduate from prospectum. He was a top 100 prospect before. He's not that anymore. So we kind of have to put him off to the side. Ahmed Rosario was a great prospect coming up through the Mets system, was very highly touted as a shortstop. It hasn't worked out for him over, I think, four seasons in Queens, um, but still a relatively young talent that's now going to Cleveland. Um, But if we're going to focus about here, about Wolf and Green, what – uh, Cleveland is getting in Wolf. He was a second round pick in 2019. Uh, he's only 20 years old. He'll be 20 for all of the next season. So he's still plenty young. We've only seen him in the GCL so far um, and at instructs, but that was behind closed doors. Normally he has a plus fastball and a plus curveball. Um, he, he throws, you know, he can hit his spots pretty well with his command and his control um, 20. So he's going to, Need some time to still be molded. He hasn't pitched in full season ball at all yet. He stands six foot three, 170, so he could fill out a little bit more. And as that comes, the velocity will add a little bit uh, as well. But he's normally pitching around the mid 90s, it sounds like, based on various reports. So the, the heat is certainly there for him. Uh, Isaiah Green has a chance to be a three tool player in the outfield. Um, his best tool is the speed right now. He could, it's plus to plus plus for him on that aspect. The, the hit tool from the left side and also his fielding ability up the middle and center uh, are both above average. They both have the potential to be that good. Um, so th- these are two interesting pieces that the Indians are adding to their mix. The thing that stands out to me is earlier in the week, I did resolutions for each AL farm system. By the time you guys hear this, the NL version will also be out. Um, but what stood out to me about the Cleveland system is that it's very young right now. It's, it's not particularly old. I think Tristan McKenzie is like the oldest prospect amongst their top 12 or so, and he's only 23. Um, so by adding Josh Wolf, who's 20, and Isaiah Green, who's 19, the, the tribe system gets even younger, um, which is good for them. It adds a little bit to their depth. Uh, I think it is very painful to let go of Francisco Lindor. He's got one year left on his contract. Uh, or one year left before he hits free agency. He's up for arbitration. It isn't quite settled how much he's going to be making in 2021, um, but estimates are roughly between 17 and a half and I think $21 million for him. Um, So the big thing for the Indians there was getting rid of that money. They chose not to pay it. 
that being said, Lindor, uh, since he debuted in 2015, is third among position players in war behind only Mike Trout and Mookie Betts. He is one of the best players in the game right now. For the Mets to trade, you know, two young infielders and two prospects for that and not have to touch any of their top eight prospects, you know, Ronnie uh, Mauricio is still around, Francisco Alvarez, Brett Beatty, Matthew Allen, Pete Crow Armstrong, JT Jin. A lot, their ceiling is still here. It was interesting to me. I, I pointed this out on Twitter earlier. Steve Cohen tweeted out, you know, congrats to Blake Snell. We're going to get to that trade in a little bit, but congrats to the Padres on the Blake Snell trade. Uh, you know, they have a deep enough farm system to pull, pull off something like that. And then he put newsflash the Mets farm system needs to be re- replenished. And that's still true. Uh, but the Mets farm system was in a place where they could still pull off a trade for one year of Francisco Lindor. And I bet they make that trade because they believe they can sign him to an extension, much like the Dodgers did a year ago with Mookie Betts. Uh, But it still needs to be replenished a bunch. But the fact that the ceiling is still there, that you're still getting Brett Beatty's power and Ronnie Mauricio's all around ability at shortstop and Matthew Allen, who a lot of people thought was the steal of the draft when he went a couple of years ago. Uh, the fact that those pieces are still in place and you bring in Lindor and you bring in Carrasco, who's probably their number three starter now, but behind Jacob deGrom and Marcus Stroman, that's a pretty strong trade from the Mets standpoint and, and one they should make in a heartbeat. The trades uh, have come in pretty big waves over the last couple of weeks and the San Diego Padres were the big headline makers prior to the Lindor deal. So Two different trades for the Padres. They acquire a former Cy Young winner in Blake Snell from Tampa Bay. Um, There's obviously a a ton to discuss in terms of the Rays going to the World Series uh, and then immediately dealing off their best pitcher, a guy who they uh, unceremoniously pulled while he was throwing a gem in game six. Uh, And the Padres also acquire Hugh Darvish from the Chicago Cubs. Now, a lot of prospects in that San Diego system, they got to hang on to a lot of their top prospects. A raft of them move out. Um, what stands out about these deals in terms of what the Rays and the Cubs get? Yeah, so so let me just uh, go through exactly who got traded. Blake Snow, as you mentioned, was the big one. Um, I'm, I'm always going to use this because it's one of my favorite interviews that we had on the podcast. Uh, Tyler, I think it's yours too. Go back and listen to the Blake Snow interview. Yeah. After this, if you're already on our podcast, feed, just search Blake Snow. It's back there. At the time, he was one of the best pitching prospects in baseball, but he told us directly, I want to be an all-star next year. Didn't work out then, but then I think two years later, he won a Cy Young. Uh, just a really a great guy who speaks his mind, knows his stuff, knows what he's talking about, knows his own ability, and both acts that way and pitches that way. So Blake Snell is one of my favorite guys to watch and listen to in baseball. Um, but him joining the Padres, he was traded for Francisco Mejia, major leaguer, uh, and then prospects, Luis Patino, one of the best right-handed pitching prospects in the game, whose stock took a little bit of a drop last year because he was used out of the bullpen, might have been brought up a little earlier than he was ready, um, but still all indications that he could be a major league starter. Uh, Cole Wilcox, a high uh, pick for them. And then Blake Hunt, a catcher who I've heard a lot of good things about in the, the leap forward he made in 2020, um, again, behind closed doors. Uh, so the Tampa Bay system gets a little deeper. They add, again, ceiling there in Luis Patino. That's crazy to me. Uh, he's only worked, I think he's only worked out of the bullpen so far uh, for San Diego. Uh, you know, the Rays will find unique ways to use him and make the most out of his abilities. Uh, so that's exciting. And then on the U Darvish side, uh, the Cubs traded U Darvish and Victor Caratini, the catcher, uh, to the Padres for Zach Davies, Reginald Preciado, Jason Santana, Ismail Mina, and Owen Casey. Um, so 
the, the standout here for me is the same thing that I brought up with the Mets is that the, the Padres were able to get a deeper rotation here. Uh, and remember, this is this comes after we know Mike Clevenger is going to miss the 2021 season. So they add two great starters, two of the best starters in recent memory, really. They get to keep on Mackenzie Gore. They get to keep on C.J. Abrams, Luis Camposano, uh, their high-round pick from this last draft, Robert Hassel III. Uh, also, Ryan Weathers, who we had on the show last year, made his major league debut jumping up straight from class a. So the ceiling is still there, but the Padres are turning into a system in which they're looking at this system and thinking, okay, great. We can improve in certain ways by bringing these guys up, but also this is capital we can spend. We can go out and bring in these blockbuster trades because the Cubs for you know whatever reason are deciding that they're not really going to go for it anymore. They're going to trade some of their best players. You Darvish being one of them, Chris Bryant reportedly on the block as well. And the Rays, we just know how they operate with well, the second a guy gets almost a little too expensive. They look to trade him. Uh, I think Blake Snell was on the hook for $11 million next year. Really not that much for somebody of his caliber, but for the Rays, the, this is just what they do. They replenish the system and they keep going. I think there's going to be a real big onus now on the Rays, though, to show that having a good system means you are going to bring results to the majors. Uh, just having the number one system in the game is is not going to be enough. Now, Luis Patino could help out next year. Brendan McKay is hopefully going to be healthy, healthy next year. There are ways they can overcome the loss of Blake Snell. Uh, Luis Patino, like I said, potentially going to be in the majors again next year. Uh, Shane McClanahan made his debut as well uh, during the postseason. So they, they have plenty of weapons there, but they really have to show that, Hey, bringing a guy like Patino in and bringing in Francisco Mejia and all these other pieces uh, is worth letting go of Blake Snell because that, that is such a big loss for them. Uh, Blake Snell was, a player development success story for the Rays. Um, you know, he, I don't think he was a first round pick, but he, he was pretty high up when he went uh, in the draft. They developed him really well. Like I said, he was one of the top pitching prospects in the game. One of the most dominant ones we've seen really in my time here in uh, minor league baseball, he, he lived up to that hype. Won a Cy Young brought them to the world series and now they shipped him out. Now they need to find the next version of him. Um, so that, that's, that's going to be on the Rays, but, Looking at the Padres system, if you would have told me at the beginning of the offseason that they were going to acquire two potential aces, I would have thought, okay, that's that's great. They're probably going to go to a middling farm system now. They're probably going to have to trade some of these guys away to make that happen. And, yes, they lost Patino, but having Gore still around and Abrams in particular, I think they still are on the cusp of that top 10 status and in a really good place to potentially make more trades or you know bring up a guy like Gore in the middle of the season next year and just keep going along and, and trying to track down the Dodgers in the AL, or in the NL West. And for our final topic this week, uh, there was a story about the potential start of the 2021 minor league baseball season for Baseball America and the uh, the always terrific journalist JJ Cooper. Um, there is some discussion as of right now that it appears that the 2021 minor league season at double A in class A will be delayed. The reason behind this being uh, that provides an opportunity for major league organizations to have the big league club and triple A guys at their facility uh, with much more space for social distancing and just a much more manageable uh, size of the crowd that is there to deal with pandemic restrictions and all those sorts of things. Um, we don't have this confirmed. We don't have schedules out. Uh, we don't have leagues yet finalized, all that type of stuff for 2021. This does seem like it makes some sense, but Sam, your reaction to this story. 
Yeah, this is just kind of another thing that is now on the horizon. Um, again, not wholly unexpected. Um, one of the things that is going to make minor league baseball go in 2021 is the ability to have fans in the stands. I mean, minor league teams, for all intents and purposes, are their own clubs. Major league teams provide them with players. Um, but in order for those teams to get going, either they're going to need help from Major League Baseball or they're going to you know, need to have fans in the stands to generate revenue. Pushing the AA, Class A advanced and Class A leagues back a little bit hopefully allows for more time for the vaccine and, and more time for certain areas to open up a little bit more and to get fans in the stands uh, at a safe time. And also safety for the players, too. I mean, these are guys who are going to have to be traveling uh, all over the country to play baseball. Um, so pushing it back a little bit seems to make sense, especially with the idea of maybe starting spring training a little later for minor leaguers uh, so that they can get in their work but not be in crowded spaces uh, in March, let's say, in, in Florida and Arizona. Um, as Tyler said, you know, we're still awaiting teams to be officially confirmed as affiliates. All we have right now are invitations that were sent out. Teams still need to send those back saying, yes, we agree to this. Once that happens, then schedules can be set and all that. And once that happens, we're going to bring that to you guys. And, you know, it's looking likely that it'll probably be a May start for some of these lower leagues. Um, we'll still, it'll be interesting to see what's going to happen with the AAA leagues. Uh, because one thing that's being bandied about right now is potentially opening up with alternate sites the same way 2021, uh, just to have guys fresh and available, but not actually playing in other games until, again, once a vaccine is really rolled out and everybody's safe and everybody can be guaranteed to travel and play in front of fans. Um, so it's another thing to kind of watch this space and see when things are confirmed. But uh, to think about this, you know, just have this in your back pocket, knowing if you're close to a double A team or some of these other teams being added to class A or class A advanced, uh, it might be a little later of a start, but that's only done for both the safety of fans and safety of players. And I think in the end, that's probably going to be a good thing. And before we wrap up our opening segment, uh, a, a moment to discuss a uh, moving on from the MILB.com family for the entirety of the existence of MILB.com. Uh, one of our, and I will call him fearless, one of our fearless leaders, Darren Smith, has been with the site since its inception back in the mid-2000s all the way through uh, basically the end of 2020. Um, Darren decided to to move on to accept a, a package from MLB.com uh, to move into the next stage of his professional career, and we cannot... Uh, begin to put into words what Darren has meant to all of us, what he has meant to the site. Um, he's a guy who we had a, a Zoom call for all of us to hear the news and to kind of give Darren um, just a few words each. And I said that uh, there have only been a handful of bosses in my entire career. And I graduated from college in 2007 and got a job uh, working in sports radio later that year. So you know, 13, 14 years as a, as a professional in sports media, there have only been a handful of bosses that I have ever looked at the way that I look at Darren. And I look at them through this prism. When I would write a story, when Darren was on for a shift and I would file it and Darren would edit it, get it posted and take the minute to say, nice work on that. That meant more to me than almost anything that I have ever uh, been able to uh, 
immerse myself in in this job. That's the kind of person Darren is. He's the type of journalist that I always wanted to work around, that I always wanted to work under, um, that I always wanted to learn from. And not having him around, you know, I got a text from uh, from Andrew Batterano on the the first shift that he had after Darren had left, and uh, and Andrew said, you know, it already feels emptier around here. Um, and I think that's the way a lot of us feel. Logging on and not seeing his name on Slack is is very strange. But Darren, uh, we're we're gonna miss you. We are so indebted to you for everything that this site is and everything that it has become. Um, I know, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who thinks of myself as a broadcaster masquerading as a writer. And I don't think that I ever would have felt like I was doing this job to the standard that it deserved if I didn't early on get a couple of those nice job comments from Darren. Um, and I, I really just can't begin to express my appreciation to him and uh, how much I'm going to miss having him around. And uh, I will not miss having to, uh, log on to Twitter with one eye open to see whether or not he or Alex Friedman of the Oklahoma City Dodgers have trolled me <laughs> after Northwestern has beaten my alma mater, the University of Nebraska in football after some stupid finish year after year after year. That's about the only thing that I'm not going to miss about Darren though. Um, and, uh, and we love you, Darren. And uh, I, yeah, I doubt he listens to the podcast. Who would listen to us talking about, you know, these things that uh that we're so nerdy about if you're already doing it for all of the other hours of your work but one of us will undoubtedly send him a text and be like hey if you want to get uncomfortable with us complimenting you be <laughs> sure to download this week's episode yeah i mean just to <laughs> add to everything tyler was saying there um it, it is a little bit of a cliche if you if you work in journalism whatsoever but um editors make writers better that's literally their job yeah. And that that's Darren to a T and that's not just the work. I mean, Tyler talked about getting a nice job from Darren. It's, it's not, that's not something that happened after every story. Um, Darren put in the work to make sure your story was at a certain standard. Um, and if he enjoyed it, that, that meant all the more, because again, we publish how many stories a night, Tyler, you know, during a season, yeah. it's, it's bordering 10, on a 12, dozen, 15. Yeah. yeah. Um, so reading a lot of baseball is what Darren Smith had to do. That's what he signed up to do, uh, and edit stories on that. So when you can make your story stand out to him, that meant a lot, um, as a writer, as a person. Uh, but, and I told this to Darren, so I'm not telling anything out of school, but, um, one of my favorite things about him is he got to understand you as a person and that made your writing better because he could either push certain stories your way. I know Tyler, um, Darren identified you pretty early as somebody who could really do a wacky story well. Um, <laughs> and that is definitely true. Uh, he, he knows his, the strengths of his writers. He knows the weaknesses of his writers and, um, you know, applies that knowledge correctly. And that, that comes down to just knowing you as a person. Um, Darren got me a copy of the power broker, which you've, if you've ever heard of that book, you know, it could be used as a doorstop. Thankfully a I haven't used Yeah, it is a, I'm surprised it wasn't assigned to me in college, how big it was. Um, but he gave it to me saying like, hey, you feel like you're starting to become a New Yorker. You're coming into your own. It's time for you to learn a little bit about New York history. Uh, and I took to that thing like a moth to a flame and burned through it. And, it, you know, th that's something that not a lot of people would have seen in me and, and meant a lot to me. And I still have that book at home on my desk, at, on, like in a pile of books that mean a lot to me. Uh, and the power broker is definitely there. Um, so... You know, Darren's not going anywhere in terms of sports media. One of the things he said is he, he's looking out for where he's going to land next. 
Um, but uh, I know I'm grateful for as long as I've had, you know, this is going on nine years now that I've been in, at this site uh, and Darren was there for all of it. And he, anything we've talked about, any story we've talked about on, on this show and, and said like, yeah, you can now see it on MILB.com. It's probably been touched by either Darren Smith or Paige Sector. Uh, I'll give Paige a shout out as well. And two of those, those two are, have just done a, a major job of making the site of what it is, what it used to be and where it is now. Uh, and we could not be more eternally grateful. So Darren might be hearing this, he might not, but it's just something that I, all of you at home should be aware of is there's lots that go in behind the scenes, not only on the show, but just on a site like MILB.com in general. And there are a lot of people behind the scenes as well. Darren Smith was one of them. Um, and yeah, we're just grateful for that and looking forward to whatever's next for him. Yeah, absolutely. If you're a fan of MILB.com, you're a fan of Darren's work, and we are uh, indebted to him forever for that. Uh, coming up, we're going to head to the Washington Nationals organization and the second-ranked prospect in that system, the former Oklahoma Sooner, Kate Cavalli, who joins the show next. Headed to the Washington Nationals organization and the second-ranked prospect in that system, a guy who was chosen in the first round of the uh, shortened and odd 2020 Major League Baseball first-year player draft. Kate Cavalli joins the show uh, from his home in Oklahoma. Kate, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? We're great. Thanks so much for doing this with us. It's a, a very strange first offseason for you, as it was a strange first season, as it was, I would imagine, a strange last collegiate season. Um, but tell us about really just the, the last few months. I mean, you get done with the alternate site stuff and get into uh, an offseason where there's still so much unknown. What have the last few months, you know, since September, October, what have you been up to? Yeah, no, it's for sure been crazy different than anything I imagined. Um, you know, the shortened season to go to the alternate site and I got a lot better at the alternate site. There was a lot of growth there. And I just try to take that and bring that home and, um, just keep, keep working on little things. And, um, it's been a lot different because at this time or even a couple months ago, I was really preparing to go, you know, six innings right off the bat in a college season. So this is my first pro season. And they actually uh, kind of shut me down for a little bit. They were like, when you give your body some rest, you're about to go into a longer season that you've never um, endured or had to, you know, conquer. Just, I mean, it's what, 15 starts in a college season at most. And now I'm going to get my body ready to go for 30, 30 starts. And that's what I'm preparing to do. Um, but the last couple months have been, very similar stuff to what I was doing during quarantine. Um, we've added a strength and conditioning program and um, also a throwing program that I've been following. And my body feels incredible right now. Um, I, I just started getting off the mound, actually. And uh, my arm feels really, really good. And the I've just been dieting, working out, um, visualizing. Um, and that's about it, you know, uh, been hunting quite a bit, a lot of golf. So it's been a really good off season. It's just very new to me having so much downtime. Um, but it's, it's been really fun. Um, and I, I mean, it's just, it's been, it's been a good time. 
when you are newly into a system um, for so many guys who were taken in the draft this year, they didn't get that opportunity to go to the alternate site you did. And so you get to form those relationships in person with people who are going to be your coaches and your teammates and uh, administrators and player development people around the the Nats organization. What's the communication like over the off season? I mean, how much do you get to hear from the organization? How much are you in contact with coaches or with, um, you know, the strength and conditioning people? What is that relationship like right now? Um, yeah, no, that's a good question. It's a, uh it's we, we've had a lot of communication and like I said, they've been sending me programs and I'll get calls every once in a while. Um, them just checking up on me, seeing how I'm doing. Um, and then we just talk as people a lot of the times, you know, talking about family, what, what we've been doing. Like we, um, some of my coaches, they're hunters as well. So there's been a lot of hunting conversation going on. Um, but you know, it's, it's been good. It's been good communication. Uh, they have a plan set out for me. And I'm just trying to execute it for them. Yeah, and going back to something you said before about you just started throwing off a mound. What are you focusing on in those sessions at at this point? Because we're in January. Normally, uh, we'd be talking about maybe a month, six weeks from now, showing up to spring training. Put that discussion off to the side. But when you're throwing off the mound right now, what are you doing? Like, how many pitches are you throwing? And what are some points of emphasis for you? Um, it's It's really light for me right now. And um, my point of emphasis is I am, you know, you're always trying to fine tune pitches and movement profiles and whatnot. But um, something that I really wanted to work on was whenever my body gets fatigued within a start, uh, just to stay within my mechanics and really trust how my body moves down the slope and just have my arm go along for the ride. So last night I, I, I like I, I did a workout before. And I got my legs just shot. They were toast. And I went and I wanted to feel my legs be able to move even whenever they're that fatigued. Because I know that normally in a start, you know, they're not going to be that fatigued. But I think it's really good to prepare um, that way. And I just try to trust my mechanics and keep my command. You know, whenever you first start throwing again, you're always trying to fine tune that command and find it. And uh, it's been it's been really good for me. I'm crazy confident right now um i'm just really looking forward to get going and uh i i worked on my slider last night um sometimes there was horizontal movement and then sometimes it was vertical and it kind of like would mix a tiny bit and i actually found a little little tipping point on it last night and uh, it had the movement profile that i wanted and it was in the area that i wanted and uh, it was just beautiful for me and it was a really big big stride in that pitch and then you know just trying to keep my change up developing um that that's for sure my favorite pitch that I throw um it was a game changer for me and I'm just going to keep developing it and get the feel and command and then um I also throw a spike curveball and the movement profile on that is exactly where I want it right now and uh you know just trying to land it in areas that I want off the of sequences and that's that's what my point of emphasis has been on these catch sessions and light bullpens. I, I love hearing you talk about movement profile because that's not something normally first year players bring up that quickly and, and taking to that terminology. And it points to where the game is right now in terms of pitching science. But when you're back home right. in Oklahoma, 
like how are you measuring this stuff are you a feel type and, and when you talk about movement profile are you just using your eyes for this or do you have like a rap soto device or something else that you are using to measure this when you're just working out on your own yeah uh i mix both of those actually um i love uh being able to feel my body i feel like that's something that um god gave me a little bit of um just feel and knowing how my body moves and when it moves correctly and being able to chase that feel. So whenever I do see a visualization of the movement profile I want, I chase that feeling. And that, that's, um, that's something that a lot of people might lose if they get too like analytical and they, they sometimes lose the feel. Um, so I, I really try to mix both. And I have a rap Soto down here at a complex that I'm working at. And I'm about to start getting on that once I ramp up these bullpens. And, um, you know, I just – I really try to mix the analytical side and the feel side. Um, I feel like that that's the way I, I uh, work best. I don't want to get too analytical. I don't want to just trust all the time on feel. I love seeing numbers as well back up what I'm feeling. And, um, like I said, whenever I do feel – that um, movement and it's right that's what I go chase and try to repeat and repeat and repeat and that I feel like that's how I get better Kate when you got a chance to be at the outside and learn from so many people in the organization was there anything kind of unexpected that you look back on you know your last season at OU and then where you are right now is there anything that you developed that maybe you didn't necessarily see coming but a piece of advice that you were given or something you were told to work on um, that seems like it's added something that maybe you didn't, uh, expect to have at this point in your career. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a lot of great conversations about pitching and the art of it. And that's something that I really like wanted to get better at is the pitchability and how to sequence these pitches. And Brad Holman, he helped me a ton on that. Um, we just talked about fastball usage um, I remember in college sometimes I'd get, you know, maybe a little slider heavy, maybe a little breaking ball heavy, and I I should have just trusted my fastball more. And um, it plays really well. And uh, I had the right 12-6 spin on my fastball, and um, the numbers backed it up. And uh, I just started using it more. And whenever I started going to establish that really early, um, my changeup played better off of it and my – curveball played really well off of it and um it, that that was a big thing for me just establishing the fastball and really trusting it and having that confidence um and at the alternate site you know I had a lot of great catchers behind the plate and we would talk about sequencing um how we're going to go use it I remember there was innings where I was like look I'm just going to go throw throw straight fastballs this inning like I don't care if the hitter knows it's coming I'm gonna command it and um, I got a lot of good results off of it, actually. And then whenever I really established that, like I said, that change up, you know, that's a hard pitch to hit. I, I've been on the hitting side in the game, and I hated hitting changeups. And I know how tough those pitches can be, especially good ones. So I, I use that a ton and the uh, curveball a ton. You mentioned you've been on the hitting side, and uh, one thing the Nats fans probably know about you and, and some baseball fans at large who watch you at OU or, or followed the draft probably know is that you were a two-way guy uh, at Oklahoma. And to have gotten that experience at a high level, to have played first base, to have hit a little bit, 
Um, how does that contribute to, you know, you learn things as a hitter that I feel like would make you a better pitcher and vice versa. How do you think the interplay of being on both sides of that kind of worked in your college career as you, you grew up as a ball player? No doubt. I think you can learn a lot just even from watching a pitchers, how I approach my at-bats, what the pitcher is going to do. And then I also grew up as a catcher and a shortstop. And, you know, you're on that side of the game. And I pitching was in the background of my mind, really, until my sophomore year of college. And um, so you're always thinking through how the pitcher is going to approach it. You see and you know what feels uncomfortable when you're getting attacked by a pitcher. And I remember what that feeling was, what some of those areas were, the sequences, and you you just think along. And I'm extremely happy that I got to experience that side of the game. I didn't grow up just straight up pitching. Um, calling my own games as a catcher, really thinking through that. My dad was a catcher in the Angels organization. He's a great baseball mind. And we would just sit down and watch games and talk about what, why, why would we throw this here? In this situation, what are we doing? Like, just little things like that, learning the game. And that's something that you can take up on the mound and you have that thought process going in. And you also have an amazing scouting report these days. So there's a ton that, you know, we have an advantage on. And I feel like I got a little little advantage um, just hitting and realizing what's uncomfortable as a hitter and trying to bring that onto the mound. And we ask this so much of, of 2020 picks we've talked to so far on the show or for stories or whatever. Um, but for you especially, because this was a year in which you were really even more focused on being a pitcher, um, you know, according to the site, you only had four starts for Oklahoma in the spring. Um, you were working up to more of that. What do you feel like you lost in 2020, like you were still a first round pick. You, you still go to the Nats, you know, in an exciting time for that system. But, um, you know, what do you feel like you would have you lost out on or what you could have done in the spring had COVID not hit in the way it did? Yeah, um, I that's a good question. I don't really think about that too much. Um, that's in the past. But, you know, you, you can't think about it. Um, first, first and foremost, I lost a season that I thought our team was extremely great. We had a lot of depth. Um, we had a lot of dudes on that team, and we were going to go far, in my opinion. I had every every bit of confidence, and so did everyone else on the squad. So that was tough, you know, knowing that that was going to be our year. Um, we really felt it. And when that got taken away, that hurt the most. Um, I wasn't really thinking about the draft too much because I know that God's got me, and whatever wherever I went is kind of how I – I approached the draft, you know, I, I, I worked crazy hard in my career for that day. And, um, just to be able to be taken in the first round was great. Um, it wasn't my goal. My goal was to go top five and that obviously didn't happen. And I mean, who knows if I would have had a full season and I was kind of growing into the picture that I've become and I'm still developing, but I'm really happy with where I'm at. And I went out, to the alternate site and had a lot of great results and just the confidence was there. And I really grew into the picture that I visualized, you know, when you lay in bed at night and you visualize what you look like up on the mound and how it's going to feel, I really grew into that this summer. And who knows if, if we would have had to extend the season could have been a possibility, but 
I mean, I, I try not to look back on that because I'm crazy, crazy pumped that I ended up with the Nats organization because I feel like this is a great pitching organization where I can grow and grow as a person as well. So uh, I'm, I'm extremely happy. But, you know, losing the season um, with the squad, that, that's what hurt the most to me. And we've talked a little bit about your time at the alternate site in Fredericksburg, but just to transition from, you know, you're talking about a little bit of a lost season, you go in the first round, you're happy with that result. Then I, I believe you're only the only 2020 pick invited to the alternate site. How did you approach that? Was it, I'm just going to get my work in. Did, was there any part of you that thought, Hey, maybe if I do well enough here, there they'll call me up. You're also trying to make, a first impression some of these coaches don't know you that well yet like how do you approach what was really a unique season and uh baseball had never seen something like the alternate site before so how did you go about that i mean for me leading up to that i knew that there was a possibility from a prior phone call like hey stay ready so i just got after it and i stayed ready um and whenever i got there i was just told myself to be myself and that's that's all i can do um I just, I I felt extremely comfortable when I got there. Um, it was just I, I felt at home. Really, it was a change of scenery for the first time in a while, and I've just felt at home. The people there made me feel at home, and it was just a really really great opportunity. And I felt like I made the most of it. Like I said, I had really good results, and my body held up every start. Um, I actually had a little velo jump from there. For uh, from college to there and my body was just moving right down the mound and the pitches were working and it was just a really fun time. I really enjoyed the pitching side and getting to know the people. It was an awesome opportunity. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed my time at the alternate site. Who are some of the people that you really liked working with or learning from? Um, both, both our pitching coaches were great and, you know, it was awesome because we got to know the hitters. I mean, we're all in the same hotel, you know, we're all hanging out. And there was a lot of conversation about just really good feedback from all the hitters. And that's something that um, I really cherished, especially knowing that they've seen a ton of great pitching. I mean, these are some of our best hitters in our organization. Even some big leaguers came down and uh, I got to throw against them. And I actually went up to D.C., got to throw against the big league squad and that went really well. And um, this, the feedback from them was great. You know, how, how they were seeing you know, my pitches and deception and what I could do to get better. And I, I took it, I took it, you know, wholeheartedly and I, I worked for it and whatever they said, I really trusted because um, they're the ones seeing it come at them, you know, and uh, those feedbacks from those hitters were huge. And then, like I said, Brad Holman, um, Mikey, they they helped me so much, um, just on the mechanical side, just little fine tunes, and um, just really having to treat my body. The strength and conditioning program was great. My body felt unbelievable every start, and that's something I was really thankful for. And uh, I'm just looking to build up on that and keep going. And one of the things that, based on what we've heard and read, is that you obviously made a big impression. Being a first-round pick, a lot of people know a lot of things about you, but it seems like the Nats were really pleased with the way things went at the alternate site to the point where you know, the Nats are, are a competitive team right now. They're trying to build, maybe make trades. 
John Heyman of MLB Network tweeted back in November, the team was considering trading for Chris Bryant, but they are determined to keep young pitchers Rutledge and Cavalli. So I know it's it's early in your pro career. You really haven't had to deal with the business side of it, of being part of trade rumors. But when you hear that the team's looking out to, to add a potential all-star infielder, but they're not willing to let go of you to make that happen, what is your reaction to that? And how does that make you feel about being part of this organization and your value in it? Um, no, that, it's a good feeling for sure, knowing that they have that much trust in me. And um, it just it, it gives me a lot of confidence and it also makes me go work harder. I want to I want to impact this organization as much as possible and to the maximum effect that I can. And that's how I'm approaching my work. I'm approaching my work to get ready to go make an impact from the start. And hopefully I get a chance to go to a big league spring training camp this year. Um, that would be awesome. And I just want to go um, help the squad as quickly as I can and as efficiently as I can. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a good feeling knowing that they have that much trust in you and they want you and you feel wanted. And that's awesome. Like I said, the people in this organization, uh, that's how it feels. You know, I got there and they just kind of took me in and they were helping me straight from the start and uh, getting to know the staff. And I also got to go down to instructs, getting to know the new players and stuff. It was really, really cool, and I, I enjoyed it, and I loved everyone. So that was a, that was a really big thing for me because I cherish relationships in this game. Um, I know it's a long journey in my career, and there's a lot of relationships to be made. And uh, I had a lot of great relationships from the start. So I was I was really pleased with that and happy. Great. Well, we have just a couple more for you, Kate. But one thing I want to touch on is something you talked about earlier in terms of the development of your pitches. You mentioned throwing a spike curveball. You mentioned working on your slider, and you feel like you got it to a great place recently. And your favorite off-speed is that changeup. One of the things that stands out to me is reading some of the scouting reports. It feels like there's a bunch of different types of reports out there on you. Some people say your curve is the best off-speed pitch you have some say the slider some say the change I mean that's that's a great place to be in as a starter to have multiple off-speed weapons like that but how would you break down your off-speed stuff where it is now and um, what still needs to happen with that to to make you into a major league starter someday yeah um if I was breaking myself down I I consider myself a power pitcher with pitchability um and that's I say that as humbly as possible. Um, I truly believe that about myself. Um, and, that, you know, that's the kind of mindset you have to have. You have to have crazy confidence in yourself and in your stuff. And I, I truly believe that I could have four-plus pitches in my arsenal. Um, my curveball is 83 to 86 with pretty consistent 12-6 movement, and it's off a great plane. My changeup is anywhere from 88 to 91. Um, and I, I love the movement profile. It's got down and fade. And then my slider is anywhere from 88 to 90. And like I said, the movement profile I had on it last night, and I repeated it really well. Um, I think it's going to be a big pitch for me. Um, and then my fastball, I was anywhere from 96 to 100 um, every start this summer. And um, it played extremely well. And the command I had with it um, – I, I really I really was pleased with it, and there's always stuff that I can go work on, and that's what I'm doing. It's just fine-tuning, um, but I really believe wholeheartedly that I have an arsenal of a potential 
and possibly at times where it's four plus pitches with command and uh, I feel like I can go attack with that stuff and it's going to be tough sliding for the hitters. Yeah, I love that type of confidence. And th- this is going to be the last one for me. Um, touched on a little bit here, but in terms of like you are now a member of the Washington Nationals organization, you've gotten to know them pretty well since being taken in June. Uh, you know, it's it's no surprise to anyone to hear that it was a down year for the Nats. They finished 26 and 34. They're still only one year removed from winning a World Series that Juan Soto, Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg all still on the roster. Uh, they went out and got Josh Bell this offseason. So obviously this is a team that's still really focused on building a major league contender. But now that you are part of this organization, where do you view where the Nats are headed? Like, does it feel like it's all focused on the major league side? Do you feel like, you know, there's going to be enough of you guys at the minor league level to supplement that? Where do you view where the the Nats are headed next? Um, I mean, I, I picture World Series. That's that's what we play this game for, and I know that's what everyone is striving for in this organization. And I actually said this in a podcast earlier. You know, it's great to be on the same wavelength as people when you're competing for the same prize. And it's not all about the business side or about where you are on the prospect list or what level you are at the minor league system. Everyone is on the same wavelength of winning that World Series. And that's what I visualize. I mean, I when I put myself in bullpen situations or I'm laying in bed, I'm visualizing myself with the most important start of the year, like a game six or a game seven in the world series with that Nats jersey on. That's, that's what I want. And I know that's what everyone else in the organization wants. And that's what we're striving for. So off the bat, you know, we're, we're going to try to be a contender for that world series. And that's what we strive for. I don't think that um, it's a rebuilding or anything. I mean, we got a great squad and I think we're going to surprise a lot of people this year. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. All right, Kate. last question for you. I'm sure this is one that you've talked about and answered some, but since we're just getting to know you, uh, I got to ask you about it. You are a very talented, uh, I don't know if you would call yourself a barber or a hair stylist or whatever it is, which is a skill that not a lot of people possess. Um, tell us how you got into that. You got an Instagram page uh, dedicated to some of the work that you do. I know you did a lot of that work at OU. Um, I'm a guy who, you know, worked in the in the minor leagues shortly after I graduated college as a radio broadcaster. And we just had one of our facilities guys who would just line up a few of us on the concourse and just give us buzz cuts, which wasn't really, oh, you know, yeah. didn't require a ton of skill. Yeah. How did you get into this? This is a cool skill to have. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's a funny story. Um, I was not expecting it to become what it has become. I actually, I, I, right before this phone call, I just got done cutting my own hair. Um, so that's funny you bring it up, but it was my sophomore year of college really early on, early in the fall. And I was just kind of watching my barber and I was like, I think I can do this. And I went and bought a set of clippers from Walmart. It was like 20 bucks and threw on a couple of YouTube videos. And one of our freshmen, his name's Wyatt Old. I was like, hey, Wyatt, you know, I've cut hair before, which is a total lie. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, he's like, all right, I'll trust you. And I gave him a haircut. And I'm telling you, it was a horrible haircut. It was bad. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, that is so bad. I, I mean, I just kind of ruined this kid's day. Felt horrible. I remember he told me, he's like, I hopped straight in my car and went to a barber shop to get it. <laughs> so it was funny. And. Um, 
someone else trusted me like less than a week later, honestly. Um, and I was like, you know, I was at the field like, guys, I'm gonna get into haircutting. Just watch. Like, and, uh, someone else trusted me and I gave a pretty decent haircut. I had been watching YouTube videos and just kind of practicing. And, um, a lot of guys just started trusting me from there after that haircut that was like pretty decent. And then, you know, with the experience, you just get better and better. And then, um, I started cutting practically the whole team within a month or two. And they're all like, Hey, you got to get an Instagram account. Like get this thing going. Like we got to get a name for it. And everyone just we we all came up with calf cuts. Um so it I got an Instagram page for it off the bat and um it just kinda blew up into something that I wasn't expecting. Like I I remember I'd be walking around campus and like some random guys, I mean I, I cut a I cut a guy that I didn't know and he was from Spain. It was just like <laughs> coming to my house and I couldn't understand him, but like he somehow heard about my hair cutting. So it just it kind of blew up into something my sophomore year, and then leading up, I actually got back home. A bunch of my family, like members, all their friends started coming to me. So I started cutting hair a ton, and then my junior year I cut all year, and I had probably sixty to seventy people that I was cutting. So it was a lot of a lot of haircuts at night. My house turned into a little barbershop, which was fun, <laughs> and and then I got to the alternate site and a lot of the guys had known because throughout the draft, it was a big topic on me. And whenever they were doing stories about my haircutting. So I got to the alternate site and a lot of the guys were like, Hey, you got your clippers on you? I was like, heck yeah, I brought them. They're in the truck. <laughs> so I started cutting hair. I started cutting hair in the hotel. And I don't know if you saw on the, um, it was a top mats. Uh, I just did one with them and we were talking about Rutledge cause he went on and he's like, yeah, like Cavalli would cut my hair and I would make him breakfast in the morning, which is true. Like, we, <laughs> I would cut his hair and he would cook me food for it. So it was pretty. That's funny a good trade. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And um, no, it's just it's gotten into something that I really didn't expect ever. And um, I got I got a cape that my sister got me for birthday for my birthday that says Cavs cuts on it. Um, it's just it's it's kind of like funny. And then I got a lot of people that trust me with their hair so I kind of have to take it serious in the same time so I'm like, it's a good gig that is awesome my favorite thing about that story is that the first person who you got to cut hair for you basically duped into allowing you to cut their hair yeah and it was so yeah. bad they immediately had to go to a barber shop to get it fixed yeah. no it's 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 funny story um oh you did a story on it and within the story they talked to Wyatt because he was my first haircut and he describes the haircut as a sideways bowl cut. Which is oh, so no. I don't it wasn't that bad, but that's what <laughs> that's, that's what we call said, painting so. a visual. Exactly. Yeah. But um no, it was funny. Well the good news is Sam travels to Florida for spring training every year. So I'm already envisioning if things are normal, there's a spring training, Sam gets to go down. I'm already envisioning set up a camera you cut Sam's hair. He does an interview during the haircut. This is, we're already making things happen here. I think yeah, this is Tyler, yeah. giving me work. We're giving both of us work here. <laughs> I'm volunteering hey, your that, hair that for haircut. So fun. I, I would absolutely. Well, we may just have to make that. that happen. Yeah, we'll make it happen <laughs> yeah. one way or another for sure. 
Awesome. That is awesome. Gabe Cabana, the 22nd overall pick in the draft in June, the first round selection of the Washington Nationals, and now the Nats' number two prospect who you can find on Twitter at Kate Cavalli. And you can find the haircuts, by the way, on Instagram <laughs> at Cavs underscore cuts with a Z. Uh, Kate, this has yeah. been awesome, man. Thanks so much for the time, and uh, congrats on all the success so far, and enjoy 2021 as, as this thing gets rolled out here soon. I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me on. It was a blast. Benjamin Hill, our good pal, joins us for the uh, first conversation of the new year. Did we talk last week? What day is it? What's happening? Hi, Ben. Hi, Tyler. Hi, Sam. Uh, yeah, we haven't talked. Yeah, we talked. Yeah, that's right. We had a very heartfelt and uh, somewhat emotional, which I guess uh, would be implied by heartfelt, um, you know, segment uh, as the final podcast in 2020. And uh, then we went our separate ways. And by separate way, I mean, probably all just stayed in the same place we were at that moment and uh, enjoyed our respective holidays. And now here we are back at it. That is true. Yeah, I guess last week, uh, a week ago today, was uh, was New Year's Eve, and so we did not talk over the over the holiday break. And so, uh, happy New Year to you, Ben. And we continue along with uh, your look back at the decade of the 2010s and some of the top uh, promotions, some of the top giveaway items, all that kind of stuff. Uh, today, we're recording this on January 7th, which is National Bobblehead Day. Um, a day that was started uh, in 2015 by the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. And so a perfect tie-in, there's a story up at MILB.com today of the top bobbleheads from each year of the 2010s. These are great because not only are they, uh, you know, bobbleheads that I remember, but they're also like some minor league events in here that I remember, uh, such as in February of 2012, when Pittsburgh Pirates director of Florida operations, Trevor Gooby helped deliver a baby during a spring training game at McKechnie Field, the home of the Bradenton Marauders. There's a lot of really good stuff in the uh, in the 2010s bobbleheads that I had kind of forgotten about. Yeah, it was fun to go through all this and, you know, tie it into this, uh, you know, sacred holiday we all observe, National Bobblehead Day. Um, yeah, and, and the way I am with, you know, when I do all these promo, you know, last year I did, a, as we talked about a lot, you know, I did a year-by-year promo of the decade series. So this is kind of a continuation of that. And, you know, when, I tr- when it comes to really choosing my favorites, I usually try to pick things that were a little weird, that tell a story, that have a regional tie-in, that sort of thing, that aren't just, you know, a particularly good player or prospect who, you know, had some attention at the time, no disrespect to those guys, but I like the bobbleheads that tell a story and can be uh, really regionally specific. And hey, I think I found some good ones going back through the years and uh, being like, Oh, wow. I remember that. Just like you were saying, yeah, Trevor Gooby delivering a baby. And that baby was named uh, McKechnie. <laughs> you can never say the word, right? McKechnie, uh, McKechnie, <laughs> the name of the ballpark. Well, not only that, is it just like minor league specific stuff that happened? And there is more of that, like the one of, of the snowman, Scooter versus the snowman. Now, it's before my time, but it seems like it was a big deal in Wisconsin. But also there's just like a lot of historical stuff in here and stuff from pop culture. And, and one that's my favorite, I think, on this list is the Hagerstown Sons and the Billy Ripken bobblehead. And they had to edit that bobblehead because it, it's based on a famous picture of Billy Ripken in which he has something at the bottom of his bat. I don't think we're allowed to say it on the podcast, what it is, but tell us about that one, Ben. And what, what still stands out to you about that uh, Billy Ripken bobblehead? Well, I chose that one as my favorite of 2018. I am, uh, you know, of the age 
or that Billy Ripken 1989 Fleer Air card, you know, was huge in my world. Uh, you know, I was a kid at the time and to have a baseball card that we could obtain and even perhaps get one in a pack uh, that had a uh, notable, uh, you know, pretty, uh, pretty big time profanity on it uh, was just a great thing. Uh, so the Hagerstown Suns, you know, sometimes in the world of minor league baseball can be a little unclear uh, whether permissions were obtained. I'm not sure if they went through Billy Ripken to make this, uh, get this one done. Uh, what I've heard about Billy Ripken is that he'd just really rather not only be known for having a profanity on his bat in the 1989 baseball card. But Billy Ripken, before he was on the Orioles, before he had that famous error card, he did play for the Hagerstown Suns as he made his way up the uh, Baltimore Orioles system. He played there in the mid-80s, I believe, 84, 85. And uh, so the Suns in the year 2018, you know, almost 35 years after Billy Ripken played for them and, you know, almost 30 years after the uh, error card in question, I think they just said, let's do it. <laughs> and they put together a Billy Ripken bobblehead that uh, references uh, that famous moment. Uh, but of course, just a smiley face on the bat. But, you know, if you know the reference, uh, you know, that smiley face stands in for something else. And um, in the family friendly world of minor league baseball, I feel like that's about as risque as you can get, you know, maybe just imply something else, but uh, keep it very subtle and overall family friendly. You also uh, this week have a story up on the top promotions of the 2010s, and there are a whole bunch in here that I had completely forgotten about as well. And it's so much fun to uh, to relive them. I know that the the Eclipse Day was an awesome day. You got a chance to actually uh, be at a ballpark that was doing an Eclipse delay that day. But there is one from 2010 that I know you have since had contact with the participants in that we were talking about before we started recording today. Tell us about that one. Yeah. So um, you know, as I said, this. Uh, this article that came out Tuesday, still right there on the homepage of MILB.com. Um, you know, after doing a year by year overview of the top promos of every year of the decade, then this one kind of wrapped it all up. And I just chose one, you know, favorite promo from each year. And, I, you know, starting off in 2010, I was looking through all the 2010 highlights and the one I chose is my favorite. And as I made clear in the article, you know, this is a very subjective task. Uh, anyone else who wanted to tackle this would come up with, uh, probably a completely different list. And that's kind of the fun of it. But the one I looked at as the best in 2010, which is so unique and random and funny and had just a decades long backstory. But in 1992, uh, a young boy by the name of Randy, and I'm going to butcher his last name, but Neuenfeld, he was 11 years old and he was at a San Antonio missions game. And he did a between inning race against Henry, the puffy taco, you know, he was a famous mascot and San Antonio uh, missions games and a puffy taco is a, a well-known uh, culinary treat in San Antonio. And Randy, you know, these between inning mascot races, they are designed to have the mascot get out to a lead, but the kid wins. The kid always wins, but something went wrong and Henry the puffy taco beat him. And this kid, this 11 year old Randy was escorted off the field in shame and horror um, and it really did kind of mess with them and everyone felt bad about it, um, that somehow Henry, the puffy taco made it to home plate before he did and, and humiliated in front of humiliated this child in front of thousands of people. So in 2010, the intern who escorted this humiliated child off the field, uh, a guy named Rick Hill, no relation, uh, he wrote a local newspaper article about how he still felt bad about this incident. And the kid in question, Randy, was now 28 years old. He saw it. He got in touch. And based on that, the missions decided to make things right. And in the year 2010, 
they had this guy, now an adult, come back and triumph over Henry the Puffy Taco on the field. And uh, at that time, you know, I, I interviewed Randy for my blog, uh, Ben's Biz blog, RIP, but it will live forever. Um, and it was just such a funny, unique story how they they got the original Puffy Taco who was there in 1992, the man who uh, was wearing that suit to come back and reprise his role. Um, you know, they just did all these details. They, they him, uh, Randy and the Puffy Taco fought against one another in various contests all inning uh, before the main event when they actually had the on-field race. And uh, Randy was finally able to exercise, exorcise his childhood demons. And uh, now it's 10 years after that. And I write this story. I choose this uh, promo as my favorite of 2010. And I got an email yesterday from Randy himself, who is now you know, close to 40 years old and uh, is a principal at a San Antonio area high school. And uh, he's like, hey, my coworkers love this. I'm so glad you picked that as uh, the best promo of 2010. I think it's the greatest promo of all time. And uh, those little connections uh, I love. And that's one of my favorite part about doing these articles. Yeah. And if he's going to, I mean, obviously he's biased and he's going to say that was the best of the entire decade, but I'm going to kind of turn the screws on you a little bit and give us your top three, because these aren't ranked. These are just going year by year. So I'll let you rank them however you want, whether it's like the, the way you remember them best or the ones that typified what the decade meant for minor league baseball. But if you had to choose three, what would you say are your top three? Well, if I had to choose three, that's, uh, that's a tough question. But number three, I'll say, uh, you know, I'll kind of go with some heavy hitters here. 2011, Fresno Grizzlies taco truck throwdown. Uh, that was the first time they did that. You know, Fresno is, has a huge taco truck culture. Um, and they drew this massive crowd to the game, you know, with local taco trucks selling their tacos. And uh, it just showed the love that Fresno has for tacos. It set in motion this becoming an annual event growing every year eventually moved outside the ballpark and then eventually it even became a non-game day event and tied in with this Fresno taco mania that really got started, at least in a ballpark context through the taco truck throwdown, you know, that led to four years later in 2015, the Fresno Grizzlies becoming the first team to name themselves after a food, you know, as an alternate identity when they became the tacos and now they play as the tacos every Tuesday, you know, we've talked about this kind of stuff a lot, but that all started with the taco truck throwdown in 2011 uh, so I'd have to put that one in the top three. Let's just say that's number three. Number two, I'll go to the absurd. Um, just last year or two years ago, the last year in which we actually had baseball, um, Charleston River Dogs, Helen McGuckin night. Um, you know, was this one that really moved the needle in terms of a lot more people showing up? Probably not. But in case you forgot this one, uh, this is the one where the Charleston River Dogs were looking at their Google reviews. And they received a two-star review from a woman named Helen McGuckin that was just, just drove by two out of five stars. And the team just thought this review was ridiculous and a little unfair. So they dedicated a night to getting Helen McGuckin to the ballpark so she would change her two-star review to five stars. And then it got more absurd because they got in touch with Helen McGuckin. She said she'd come. Then at the last second, she said she couldn't. So the team recruited one of their front office members, I believe a woman who worked as a receptionist, to just be a stand-in Helen McGuckin and get the best possible ballpark experience uh, for one night only. Um, and that's what they did. And it was just- I would watch an, yes, an exhaustive Netflix series on Helen McGuckin. I would watch like an eight-part mini investigative 
miniseries on Helen McGuire. Who drives by a ballpark, gives a rating based on just drove by, and not like a one or a five-star, but a two-star rating. Then a whole promo is devised about you, and at the last minute you say you can't come. I would watch Tiger King, the Helen McGuckin edition. I would watch it. Yeah, I think there's, it is one of those things you can just really explore. I mean, the team had fun with it. They had between-inning contests where they read – um, some of Helen's other reviews of other businesses. <laughs> and then the contestants would have to guess how many stars she gave it based on the review, um, you know, that kind of thing. So um, one of the things that's, you know, kept me in this, uh, in this game, in this racket for so long is the inherent absurdity that teams can embrace. So, you know, that's just an example of the absurdity that can happen in minor league promos. And as I said, you know, if you're a team, um, you might do something like Helen McGuckin night. You're not expecting it to be, you know, a huge deal or something that makes you a lot of money. But I think one important thing it does do is, you know, it, it gets press because it's so ridiculous and it puts your team in the conversation as one that's really creative. And I think that is an important thing in terms of attracting talent and in terms of just developing an overall rotation uh, reputation uh, in the industry at large and in your community for creativity. I think it's important to keep pushing the envelope and to say, hey, we've got 70 home games and we can be ridiculous at times. And then number one, you know, we've talked about this so many times. I just can't not say it, uh, but it was 2017 when there was the national eclipse, the first coast to coast total solar eclipse in 99 years. Seven teams were in the path of totality. All of them had a ballpark event. Six of them played a game. I happened to be in Columbia, uh, South Carolina for that game. And, you know, to witness the eclipse uh, during a break in the action, a built-in eclipse delay, you know, wearing those, uh, you know, team logo glasses, eclipse viewing glasses with almost 10,000 other people, um, just a spectacular experience and uh, not one that can be done very easily, obviously, but, and we'll have to look into this and, you know, put it on the calendar to talk about uh, in a year or two or three, but there's another eclipse coming in 2024 in April, but I think really? that uh, will hit some other minor league towns. I think it's a little more Midwest this time. I, for some reason, I know Toledo's part of it, but I think it'll be early, but I think there will be the chance in uh, 2024. Look it up, check out the path of totality of the 2024 uh, solar eclipse, see what baseball towns, major and minor, it goes through and make your plans now. Oh yeah, there's going to be a lot of them as it looks right now. Because uh, I absolutely just Googled it as soon as you said that. Looks like uh, Texas, Arkansas, uh missouri parts of kentucky pennsylvania it's gonna be it'll be fun i had no idea this was coming i got plans now for for three years from now yeah there you go we got a market on the calendar and one thing i did learn from the 2017 eclipse is that you know there's a huge amount of eclipse tourism and these places that we're in the path of totality, you know, starting in the Pacific northwest and then moving southeast throughout the day all the way you know into south carolina and then and you know into the ocean uh but all these uh places you know were booked months or even years in advance in terms of the hotel rooms and uh you know people really go out of their way to be in the path of totality and after experiencing it i see why but i couldn't get a hotel room in columbia um you know i got a uh, airbnb through a woman who just only started her airbnb because of uh, the eclipse happening and uh, i was just it was unique i liked her she was a uh a very progressive, funky, kind of older hippie lady. Uh, had some chickens wandering around. I was sleeping in a kind of like shack out in the back, and uh, it was a good experience. Were you in the coop, Ben? Is that what you're trying to tell us? You were just in the chicken coop? I was near the coop, but I was not <laughs> in the coop. Coop adjacent is what you were. I was coop adjacent. That's correct. Okay. Coop adjacent. 
Benjamin Hill is on Twitter at Ben's Biz. You can find all of his stuff at MILB.com slash Ben's Biz. Both of these stories are up on the site right now. And uh, good to talk to you, man. Thanks for uh, for checking in. It's good to hear from you. And congrats again on, on the fatherhood. We, I don't feel like oh, we yeah, gave... that thing. Sometimes I <laughs> just forget that's happening. Yeah. Thanks, like we guys. gave ample time for congratulations standalone to that because we were doing like the holiday thing. But uh, congratulations again, buddy. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, things are going to be different really soon. And uh, it's easy to forget about that. You know, I'm losing myself in the world of minor league baseball and promo memories. And then I forget that uh, by the end of next month, I'm going to be a dad. But hey, nuts. hey, you know, one thing at a time. One thing exactly. exactly. <laughs> thanks, man. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Sam. Talk to you guys later. a fun show today uh big thanks to Cade Cavalli who again you can find on Twitter at Cade Cavalli C-A-V-A-L-L-I and uh before we bid farewell for our first 2021 episode Sam has this week's nationwide prospect fact of the week yeah so uh we're gonna stick on the Cade Cavalli train I don't have any facts about like him cutting hair which is too bad I wish I had like stats about that like how many bowl cuts he's done (laughs) straight shaves he's done a sideways bowl yeah me Maybe when I'm doing that interview in the spring, I'll just ask him to like come with facts prepared. To do it that way. So maybe that's another preview. Again, just love that Tyler's assigning me things via the podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's great. If it would have been uh, a guy whose spring training was in Arizona, I would have volunteered. But then I would have gone down sure, there. And like, sure, I hate uh-huh. my hair. Nothing's going to make it good. So, yeah. Uh, it's also interesting that you say that because the last time we saw each other on Zoom, you instantly slacked me. as like, your hair's doing great because I have not cut it. Yeah, since it's fantastic. June, I think. Yeah. So it's, it's getting yeah. a little too long. So I'll, it's, I'll uh, keep it going until I see. Quality. It's impressive. Right. Anyways, <laughs> prospect fun fact of the week. Um, we brought this up about Kate Cavalli that he used to be a two-way player uh, at the University of Oklahoma. So I wanted to just read off what he was like as a hitter. Um, he went a little bit hot and cold, but his hottest year was as a sophomore in 2019. He got 84 plate appearances in for the Sooners. He hit 319 with a 393 OBP and a 611 slugging percentage. Uh, he hit four homers in those 84 plate appearances, drove in 17 runs. Um, so that's a pretty small sample, all things considered. And you can see why he really put the focus on becoming uh, a pitcher. But this is somebody who in, in 2018 played in the Cape League, got in some at-bats down there. Uh he hit a lot more as a freshman in 2018, got 235 plate appearances, uh, seemed to have shut that down. But one question I, I wish if we had more time, we could have asked him is like, when you are a former two-way player, now you are going into the major leagues. One of the big questions of the off season is, is the, the DH going to be universal in 2021? We don't really know the fate of the DH, what it's going to be long-term. Is he anti-DH because he used to hit a little bit. Uh, and one of my favorite answers that he gave was his hitting experience informed what he does as a pitcher. Uh, would he like that to continue? Maybe he wouldn't. I, I don't know. Um, something to look out for going forward. But if Cade Cavalli ever does come up as a hitter in the pro ranks, don't be surprised if he runs into one. He does have experience doing that, and that's something to watch with him going forward. So that will do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. Happy new year to all of you. Stay safe. Uh, continue to do all the things to get us back to some normalcy and some baseball and all of that. Wear your mask and wash your hands and keep your distance. And uh, for Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mon. We'll talk to you next week.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.